Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm brain-sick film scholar Noella Croy. And I'm story expert and one to watch out for, Lonnie Diane Rich. And we're here today to talk about, yes, Reptile Boy, the fifth episode of season two. Woohoo! Reptile Boy <laughs> was first broadcast on October 17th, 1997, and was written and directed by David Greenwald. A warning before we begin, every episode of Still Pretty talks about each episode within the greater context of all of Buffy and as such is fully spoiled. So give it your all and keep to the shadows. Let's go on patrol. boy we see a young girl escaping from a fraternity with boys in hooded cloaks chasing after her she makes it halfway through the graveyard when they overtake her and drag her away at school giles chastises buffy over taking it easy because it's been quiet and buffy rebels by hanging out outside where cordelia meets with richard her wealthy college boyfriend and his friend tom who notices buffy well why don't you introduce us okay while patrolling in the graveyard, Buffy finds the girl's broken bracelet, but she's more interested in fighting with Angel. She wants to date, but he knows it's not a good idea. This isn't some fairy tale. When I kiss you, you don't wake up from a deep sleep and live happily ever after. No. When you kiss me, I want to die. In the fraternity basement slash ancient dungeon, we see Richard performing a ritual while Callie, chained to the wall, asks to be let go. He laughs at her. At school, Cordelia asks Buffy to go to the party with her because Richard says she needs to bring a girl and Buffy agrees. Tom seems nice and why shouldn't she have a little fun? She gives the bracelet to Giles and when he tells her she needs to patrol that night, she says her mother is sick and she's sick and she's got a ton of homework. Willow is appalled that Buffy lied. I wasn't lying. I was just protecting him from information that he wouldn't be able to digest properly. Like a corn dog. Xander decides that he'll go to the frat party, too, to protect Buffy. And maybe catch some of that fine fraternity orgy action because, ew! Buffy and Cordelia go to the party and Richard serves them both drinks. Xander shows up at the party looking for Buffy, but gets carted away by the guys who dress him in women's clothing and make him dance for them. Sweet, shy Tom asks Buffy to dance and is charming and gentle with her. And clearly, pure evil. We're not all a bunch of drunken louts. Some of us are sober louts. Hashtag not all frat boys. At the library, Giles and Willow track the broken bracelet to a nearby prep school where a girl recently went missing and discover that girls go missing this time every year. Later, a clearly roofied Buffy passes out cold in a frat bedroom, and when Richard tries to take advantage of her, sweet, self-deprecating Tom stops him. But not because he's a good guy. Well, she's not here for your fun, you pervert. She's here for the pleasure of the one we serve. In his name. At the school, Giles calls Angel in, and just as they're all about to go to Buffy's house to get Buffy, Willow confesses that Buffy's at the party. Giles is upset that Buffy lied to him. Angel's upset that she might have a date. And Willow's had it with both of them. Why do you think she went to that party? Because you gave her the brush off. And you never let her do anything except work and patrol. And I know she's the chosen one, but you're killing her with the pressure. I mean, she's 16 going on 40. And you, 
I mean, you're going to live forever. You don't have time for a cup of coffee. Later, Cordelia and Buffy wake up chained to the wall next to Callie, who is dirty and bedraggled and pissed off. All the frat boys are wearing hoods and preparing for a ritual. It does not look good. They call up a giant snake demon named Makita, because of course it's a giant snake, and choose Cordelia to be sacrificed first. Outside, Giles, Willow, and Angel find Xander, and they all break in, fighting their way down to the basement, where Buffy has pulled her chains loose from the wall and starts taking out frat boys. You bitch. I'll serve you to him in pieces. Tom, you talk too much. Buffy slices the giant snake in half and saves the day. The rich, white frat boys are carted off to jail, and in the most unrealistic part of this episode, are immediately all sentenced to life in prison. An angel meets Buffy later at the bronze and finally works up the nerve to ask her out on a date, and Buffy plays it cool. I hear this place uh, serves coffee. I thought maybe you and I should get some. Sometime. If you want. Yeah. Sometime. I'll let you know. So, Noelle, Reptile Boy. All right. What'd you think? Okay. So, I'm the story amateur around these parts, but structurally, this episode seems really strong to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts? I want you to take it away, story expert. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, here's the thing. On a podcast that will remain unnamed, um, I said that Reptile Boy was a legit good episode. And it is. Narratively, it's a strong episode. People gave me such unbelievable hell for that for such a long time. But I'm going to tell you right now, I can back my argument up. This is actually a good episode of Buffy. I mean, it's almost universally reviled, right? And I think there are good reasons why people hate this episode. I mean, it's gross. The threat is gross. It's super gross. The frat boys are gross. The monster's practical effects are really bad. Like, there's a lot of stuff in this episode that is not great. But as a story and the character work is actually really pretty good. Um, And the thing is, like, I kind of understand how this happens. Because for me, when I think about an episode of Buffy... Usually the first thing I associate with it is whatever the monster of the week was, you know? Right. And so if the monster is bad, you know, then I remember the whole episode as being bad. But more often than not, I'll go back to these episodes and I'm like, ugh, that was terrible. And I'll watch it. And I'll be like, oh, actually, that wasn't so bad. It was just that I remembered and associated it with this monster thing. But there's other good things in there. And I think that's what happens with Reptile Boy. But people are always coming after me because I said <laughs> it was good. It's good. It's yeah. a good episode, you know? Um, here we have at least consequence for our bad guys, uh, which is something we fail to get much of the time, especially when the bad guys are white human boys, right? You know? Yes. Um, I mean, you know, sure, usually within the frame of Buffy, the demon or the monster or whatever gets killed, but the boy who raised him, as in some assembly required, what we saw recently, gets comfort. And a cookie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that offends me way more than bad practical effects on a giant snake demon. Um, and I know we've got huge, huge issues with patriarchy here, which we are going to absolutely get to. But the patriarchy is punished and presented as bad. So that's not a problem for me. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but looking at it purely from like a narrative 
perspective. We've got four acts that properly escalate the main story. We've got side stories with Buffy versus Angel and Buffy versus Gile that fold into the main story really nicely. We've got great moments from both Willow and Cordelia and our, um, you know, guest character, Callie, who is amazing. Yes. Uh, we got that kick-ass damsel in the background doing more than screaming and being a victim, which I absolutely love. So all that stuff I think is really good. Um, in Act 1, we find out that Cordelia's boyfriend is bad news because we see him, you know, kidnapping a girl. But at the end of the act, we find out that he and the other frat boys kidnapped her so that they could ritualistically feed her to a demon. I mean, that's a nice escalation that shows us that he's bad like even worse than we thought it was, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we've set up Buffy versus Giles and Buffy versus Angel, which are both going to play nicely with Buffy's motivation later to go to the party and to lie to Giles about it. We get Cordelia needing Buffy to impress Richard, which is really nice, you know? Um, we meet sweet, shy, respectful Tom, who surely must be completely unaware of Richard's badness because he's just so nice, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, well, and his last name is Warner, and I just sure. was like, Warner... I hardly know her. Like, just... <laughs> yeah, somebody should warn her about somebody. Warner, I guess. Somebody should warn her. <laughs> I think that probably was the intentional mm-hmm. reason why they named him that. In Act Two, Buffy lies to Giles to go to the party, which is an escalation. And when she and Cordelia get there, they're immediately given suspicious drinks. I mean, Jesus, he hands her a three olive martini. She's 16, not 45. <laughs> And Cordelia runs off with Richard, leaving Buffy on her own. She dances with Tom, finds broken glass outside on the porch, and then he manipulates her into having a drink. She passes out on the bed, and when Richard tries to take advantage, it's Tom that stops him, not because he's protecting Buffy, but because she's promised to the snake demon, and we pan the shot to see Cordelia passed out on the floor. Another perfect escalation. Then in Act 3, Buffy and Cordelia are chained up in the basement with Callie, who knows the score and has no time for Cordelia's shock and denial, which is fantastic. So good. Meanwhile, I know. (laughs) Meanwhile, Willow unloads on both Giles and Angel for the separate ways they've each failed to see what they're doing to Buffy. And we're off to the frat for the big fight. We end on Cordelia being freed from the wall and dragged to the snake, whose terrible face we've finally seen. And it's terrible for unintended reasons, which are really bad practical effects. But Cordelia's about to get eaten, and that is another perfect escalation. And in Act 4, we get the big fight. The big snake is cut in half. The frat boys are brought to justice. Giles apologizes to Buffy and his understanding, and Angel asks her out on a date. Finally. And those internal emotional stories work nicely with the Monster of the Week story and keep us connected to everything all the way through. Buffy's internal emotional arc harmonizes with the external defeat the monster arc, which I love. So I get it. The snake demon is gross and not well executed. Uh, The patriarchy is disgusting and annoying and wrong. And the frat boys are supremely hateable. But I stand by my assessment. This is not a bad episode of television, nor is it a bad episode of Buffy. I stand by it no i i totally agree with you i love the way that the subplots with buffy and giles and buffy and angel Mm -hmm. support the frat boy story in that buffy has a choice between the patriarchy or Mm -hmm. the other patriarchy apparently (laughs) like it's like what it, no, I think it's I think it's really, really well executed. It's appropriately gross. Like the mm-hmm. guys who are supposed to be gross are super gross. It's really yes. effective. Mm-hmm. And I just love Tom as a villain. I love that 
that twist of he's so he's so nice and self-deprecating and he tells Mm -hmm. Richard to back off when Buffy's not interested. But then it turns out that he's the worst of the worst. Yes. I just Mm -hmm. love that. That he yeah, stops, he he comes to stop the assault, but, and you think, oh, okay, he really is a good guy, but of course it's in the service <laughs> of the snake monster and not right. out of respect for Buffy's humanity. And yes. he's a great villain. I really, really enjoy, I really enjoy hating him, I guess is what I'm saying. I do, I do too. No, he's really fun Um, in this way that we have these bad men that we're going to be seeing throughout Buffy, right? You know, there's a point in, I think, season four or five where Spike says you got bleeding tragic taste in men. And oh, my God, is that true? <laughs> um, she out. loves this faux charmer, right? You know, here I stand in all my doltishness. Oh, dear fucking god this is scott hope we're gonna see him again in season three it's parker abrams who we're gonna see in season four it's owen who we saw in season one it's ford who we're gonna see a little bit later oh, this season and god and i'm i'm not gonna lie to you it's a little bit riley riley is kind of like it riley is floppy haired douchebag 5.0 where they yeah. finally made him into like the quote-unquote good guy but riley has a lot of these same problems this like you know charming quiet oh i'm just a guy kind of thing um a little bit too smooth and um and and like so incredibly entitled yes um and it's something that that we see a lot uh but here with tom it's okay because he really is a monster he's supposed to be a jerk yeah and um so the fact that we use this model later for guys who are supposed to be just you know guys like they have they have different levels of badness like owen's kind of clueless and whatever Scott Hope is a bit of a jerk, but, you know, whatever. Parker Abrams is absolutely a jerk. Um, But Riley, you know, is the guy she falls in love with, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that is, it's a little bit tough, this spectrum of floppy haired douchebag that we have. They don't always have floppy hair, but they're always a douchebag in this very (laughs) specific way. Um, But here with Tom, it's it's really nice because you think, oh, he's the nice guy. He's going to have no idea what terrible things Richard is doing. And it ends up that he's actually worse. And then Buffy is moving away from Angel to Tom. It's like falling out of the monster pan and into the monster, you know, it's just (laughs) way worse, you know. Um, So Tom is actually, I think, a really good villain Richard's a little um a little cardboard he's you know I yeah mean, and I think you know, he's, he's meant yeah. to be he's way mustache twirly in that opening yeah, sequence he where mm-hmm. he he turned like his back is to the camera as they're mm-hmm. dragging Callie away they've caught up with her in the graveyard and they drag her away yeah. his back is to the camera and he like looks over his shoulder at the camera yeah. with his floppy hair just you know being floppy in the moonlight (laughs) for us to see and then he like flips his hood up onto his head and walks away Mm -hmm. and it's so like he's just he's got this this like olden timey villain tying the damsel to the railroad tracks kind of a vibe Mm -hmm. in that moment Mm -hmm. so i mean we always know that he's gross like he's just gross the way Oh, the, the the actor does a great job. The way he calls Buffy sweetheart, mm-hmm. how you do? It's like how you doing, sweetheart? And just, yeah, she's like so not interested. And I'm like, with you, <laughs> let's with you, let's move on. Yeah, but he's really he's very 
cardboardy and very just he's he's slimy from the get-go yeah he's he's a caricature of the slimy frat boy you know and and that's fine you know because he's he plays that role that's fine but it's interesting though because we actually are going to do this again almost this exact same thing when we hit season seven and the episode i think is called help Mm -hmm. in which we have a character named cassie who is mm-hmm. going to be sacrificed by rich boys, although they're in high school at the time, rich boys wearing hooded cloaks, sacrificing a girl to a demon for riches. That's you know? right. Um, it's almost the same thing over again. Oh and, um, and I think we, you know, I think we do it pretty well here. Um, but sacrificing women to a demon is not, you know, for, for personal benefit is not something that the Buffy verse is a stranger to. We're going to revisit this well <laughs> in variations a few times throughout, throughout the whole run between Angel and Buffy. It, it happens. Uh, it happens a bit. It's almost um, like that's something that happens. I don't know, like in the world that men will yeah. crush women to get ahead financially i don't know oh just yeah no it absolutely does <laughs> just a so crazy let's talk a little bit yeah let's talk a little bit about the patriarchal penis demon money snake which by the way i just said but that's noel's line yeah the penis demon money snake i was like well this is obviously the capitalist patriarchy and uh right women are disposable because all hail the penis demon of wealth the end right like i don't yes i want to say something really really deep and insightful about this but it's so upfront it's literally their wealth and status comes from the worship of this phallic monster that lives in the basement or under Mm -hmm. the basement it lives in the foundation of the fraternity house and this Mm -hmm. fraternity is notorious for um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The the families of the boys are also involved. So it's, you know, mm-hmm. Tom is involved because his father was involved and his grandfather was involved. So it's this, it's generational penis yeah. demon money snake worship. <laughs> I mean, it's exactly. like, and it got them all their wealth, yep. you know, and all of their privilege. And that's how they get it. They get it by sacrificing women. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's not a million miles away from the Watchers Council. No. I mean, right? Because here we have men sacrificing young girls uh, to this demon to get money. And in the Watchers Council, we have, and as as we will see later on when we get more of the mythology, the Slayer is created by men mm-hmm. who want a woman to protect them. And so they take the most disposable type of person you know in their um in in their in their tribe right which mm-hmm. is the young girl yeah and they make her do it because when she dies who cares yeah right then we'll just raise another one yeah she they make her they put her into this brutal existence which will be short but she's she's fighting evil so she's good and they are you know fighting demons so they're like the ultimate result is on the side of good but what it is is that they sacrifice her life so that they don't have to sacrifice their own mm-hmm. and we're it's not a million miles away not to mention that giles gets paid for being a watcher buffy does not get paid for being a slayer right and buffy takes i mean she is grappling with it in this episode she takes all of the the pressure 
mm-hmm. to do this this work, you know, to do her duty. <laughs> this is all right. it's all on her. And I I got to say I love the way that Giles tries to appeal to her on various levels when she's pushing mm-hmm. back against doing her duty because she's feeling oppressed by this Mm -hmm. oppressive system that gives her no time or space to herself. He, he tries to uh, empathize with her. You know, you Mm -hmm. think, I don't know what it's like to be 16. And she said, she comes right back at him. It's one of my favorite lines. (laughs) No, I don't think you know what it's like to be 16 and a girl and the slayer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, she's, she has all of these these roles and responsibilities put on her mm-hmm. with no regard for her desire. And then, of course, yeah. Giles turns around and is stern with her and he like lectures her on her mm-hmm. duty. And he tries. So he tries all of these avenues to appeal to her sense of her role in this because he's taking his role as her watcher Mm -hmm. very seriously and yes his Mm -hmm. from his perspective she's not taking her role as the slayer seriously because she wants to i don't know do other things have a life yeah yeah yeah. date a vampire (laughs) which is (laughs) so so interesting the way that comes up in this episode the way that that angel and buffy's relationship is dealt with in this episode but yeah giles Giles hits her with this is your job you have to do this and it's it's kind of I was gonna say not I mean not kind of it's disgusting that she's not um paid in this position that is incredibly dangerous incredibly challenging right and yet it's somehow supposed to be a great honor to be the chosen one or something right. like it's supposed to be like, you know, Giles tells her to he tries to pep talk her into leaning into her differentness, her, you know, mm-hmm. like her specialness. And she's having none of it because mm-hmm. it's not a specialness that she particularly cherishes because it yes. is oppressive. Mm-hmm. It is dangerous. She's going to die. I mean, that's yeah. her whole her whole job. Is and she to... has to spend her whole life yeah. fighting monsters. And, you know, I mean, it's just Giles is I, I kind of really like we have this subtle arc with Giles that we don't really shine too much of a light on. But we see him very much representing this perspective of the Watcher's Council, which is something that he has been raised in. You know, mm-hmm. um, this idea that this is the Watcher's duty and this is the Slayer's duty and this is sacred and it's important. And they're focusing on we're fighting demons. Right. And nobody's focusing on what it does to this girl, to the Slayer, Mm -hmm. right? And so Giles is coming from this perspective of like, this is what he's been taught. This is how things are supposed to be done. You know, this is the way it's done. And he's failing to reject the premise, Mm -hmm. you know? Buffy is completely rejecting the premise, you know? Um, And so it's, it's interesting because... As we see Giles move forward, especially I think the the big turning point here is the season three episode Helpless. But when we when we get to that, we finally get Giles completely seeing how bullshit the Watchers Council is. Yeah, you know, um, and it's it's an interesting arc getting there. But I also really like that he apologizes to Buffy. He does. You know, at the end of this episode that he sees what he was doing to her, which he didn't see until Willa yelled at him, which is really, really so great. <laughs> it's really great. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's 
It's interesting to, you know, come back to the penis demon money snake. Yeah. Uh, PDMS, <laughs> trademark pending. Um, <laughs> when we come back to to that kind of really gross, you know, really clearly oppressive, you know, institution of, of sacrificing girls to this snake mm-hmm. every year, you know, um, for wealth, right? Um, to see the reflections of that in the Watchers Council yeah. is kind of interesting. I don't know that it was intentional here, but I mean, you can well, clearly see it. You know? I don't know that it's not intentional because Giles in this episode strikes me as the most um, patriarchal that he seems mm-hmm. so far when Buffy is hanging out outside the school and Giles comes out, you know, glaring at her and pointing mm-hmm. to his watch. It's very much like it, it very much has that oppressive, you know, authoritarian yeah. father sort of feeling to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a coincidence that that we've got that pairing of this very obvious metaphor for the patriarchy and then we have Mm -hmm. patriarchal giles i mean buffy talking about um the snake says it Mm -hmm. comes to us cordelia is afraid that they're going to be thrown down this pit but buffy says it comes to us Mm -hmm. and i think that's really astute (laughs) like that just yeah you know, both in the moment and also metaphorically that. Yeah, it will come. The it, patriarchy it'll find is not you. something you can avoid. Yeah. It will find no you. No worries. Yeah. It's coming to you. <laughs> I mean, I think that was because they didn't want to build another set where they had to throw the girls down. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but fun. no, but that's true. Yeah. It, it's true. It does come to you. It rises you know? up out of the ground. I mean, come on. Yes. Come yes. on. We're just. <laughs> Um, well, one of the things that I absolutely love in this episode, though, is Callie. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> she is kind of kick-ass. We open, we see her running away. You know, she's she's um, climbing trees, jumping over gates and fences and stuff, and she's getting the hell out of there. She gets overtaken by the guys. Mm-hmm. Um, she's chained down in that basement for, you know, days. She's covered in dirt. She's grimy. She's been had her hands elevated above her head on these chains for uh, days at least. Yeah, over a week. We know Um, she's been missing for over a week. Yeah. And she's pissed. You know, when they come down there and she's like, no one's going home ever. Yeah. Um, She has absolutely no time for this bullshit, which I think is so great. And we have um, we have her also saying one of them's different, nicer. He's the one to watch out for. You know, of course, talking about Tom. Right. And I love that because these guys who are so like the the guys who are the most evil, I think, are the ones who put on the show of being, you know, they know how to behave and they know what to say Mm -hmm. and they know how to be disarming. And then they're just fucking evil. Like the stuff they do is so shocking because you're like, well, you came off as such a nice guy, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and what they do when nobody's looking or when nobody with power is looking, because this is a clear um, demonstration of what happens when people have power and when people don't have power, when we have Richard laughing in Callie's face when she's asking to be let let go. Yeah. Right. That is a clear contradiction in power. Like when when people in power have absolutely no empathy for what they're doing to the people who are not in power, like that's when you see who somebody truly, truly is. But the idea that the nice guy 
right? The one who seems really sweet, who seems really connected and empathetic and self-deprecating, that that guy's even worse. Yeah. You know, because at least Richard's being honest about who he is. You can't and you can't spot him right away. He's all ritually scarred on his back. But that's under the surface. But you don't see Mm -hmm. that until he's too late. Yeah. He's stripped until down. it's too late. Yep. Right. And Richard has the floppy hair marker. Yes. Right? You see the floppy hair. You're like, well, there's a floppy hair douchebag. Right. <laughs> but Tom is every bit of floppy hair douchebag, but does not have the floppy hair is not even honest with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's all of that. That kindness as manipulation mm-hmm. is so I mean, I, I've talked about Tom as a villain already, but I just I love it because that feels yeah. I mean, First of all, that just feels fucking relevant that yes. it's the mm-hmm. it's we know that we have to look out for the the people who are gross and scary and oppressive and are spouting, right. you know, hateful, hateful The guy nonsense. in the alleyway with the knife. Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. But those people are at least honest. Yeah. The guy who seems yeah. like an ally, the guy who yeah. says all the right things, the mm-hmm. guy who intervenes but really only for his own gain and only if it's in public where people can see him doing Mm -hmm. it you know Mm -hmm. because that buys him when people trust you you can do anything oh yeah you know if you can get people to trust you and believe that you're a decent human being then you can do anything and what i love with these three girls right here we have callie right yeah um, she's dressed in white or light colors, but she's dirty. She's dingy. She's been through some shit. Yep. She has seen some shit. Right. And so we have this this contrast. We have Buffy in black, which I really love because Cordelia told her not to wear black because that was her signature. And Buffy wears black anyway. I thought that was <laughs> it's really pretty nice. great. Um, and then we've got Cordelia in the fancy, you know, green dress. Right. And we've got these three women at different stages of recognizing the patriarchy. We've got like the woman who knows. Mm-hmm. Right. This is Callie. And she's seen some shit. She's absolutely not having any of it. She's mm-hmm. getting the shit beat out of her for it. Right. Um, the woman who's figuring it out, you know, which is Buffy, where she's like, okay, I see this is the situation we're in. We're going to have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there's the woman in denial because she benefits from the system. Yep. You know, and we've got these three women. I love it. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I love the, the sort of three beat of women under the patriarchy, but Mm -hmm. Callie is absolutely magnificent i mean you talked already about her her escape i mean the girl breaks a window climbs out of it jumps from the second story she jumps off a balcony Uh um and something that i thought was very interesting is that when we learn her full name callie megan anderson cordelia is seeing richard anderson yeah. I know that's a common last name. I know it's a very common last name, but there aren't that many characters, named characters in this episode. And I think it's pretty clear that this is Richard's sister. Oh, I thought it was his cousin or something. No, I think it's his sister. I mean, she's attending prep school that's that sacrifices from us the own is from right. the family. Yeah. Wow, that's super dark. And it also it fits really nicely in with mm-hmm. the the role for Callie as the woman who knows what's going on. Um, because she was raised? Yeah. It. Well, and I want wow. that story. 
I want to hear about yeah. that girl. She always knew something was sketchy with the men in her family. <laughs> so she's not, which yeah. is why I think it's part of the reason that she's not afraid. She's angry because this is. This she's is, not surprised. Yeah. She's not shocked. Yeah. Yeah. This is a mm-hmm. this is just a huge betrayal in the revelation. Yeah. Not it's it's less horrifying in the way that that Buffy and Cordelia are horrified and that yes. there's a big mm-hmm. old snake that's gonna eat you. She knows right. what's up. Um yeah. I mean and I don't know that there's there's a ton of textual evidence for that. She's attending. We hear that that she was attending Kent Preparatory School, which is mm-hmm. near the the fraternity, I guess. And mm-hmm. I don't yeah. understand the geography of Sunnydale and neighboring oh, towns, it's, it's, but it whatever. fluctuates. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it changes. It's fine. Um, yeah, whatever. We, whatever the you know, it's like it's it's. We need a hell map is what we need. Right. <laughs> the geography. Whatever. I'm sure somebody has it out there somewhere. The the map of Sunnydale. I think it's supposed to be based on Santa Barbara. Okay. That's fair. I guess. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. I, I just love, I love Callie as the, she is tough. She is mm-hmm. going to fight till the end, even when she knows that. You know, yeah. it's it's pretty hopeless at this point. You've been chained up mm-hmm. for over a week in the basement yeah. waiting mm-hmm. to be eaten and sacrificed by I'm pretty sure it's her brother. That just Yeah, feels... I don't know. I find it interesting. I think that's an interesting idea. I my guess is somebody had the name Anderson on the brain. They just accidentally put it in twice and then didn't wasn't able to fix it because it already been shot or whatever. So they just left it. Um But I like but, it uh, because yeah, I like it because really I think I think yeah. women like I like the idea that under the system women aren't even safe in their own families. Yeah, I mean, and someone yeah. who preys on you is likely to be somebody who is in your own family in terms yeah. of. No, I like that. Yeah. I mean, when when uh, when folks are kidnapped, I mean, the, the mm-hmm. first suspects are always uh, partners yeah. and family members. Mm-hmm. So because the people most likely to abuse you, most likely to hurt you are people in your family, in your close circle. Yep. Yeah. So I think that there's I'm not sure that that was intended, but I think that everything you're drawing out from this is absolutely a legit reading, you know, and he calls her by her name like he talks to her with familiarity. Oh, yeah. And he's so you know? he's so cruel when he comes over yeah. and says, what's a girl like you doing in a place like this? Right. Oh, gross. it's just so incredibly gross. Um, all right. Well, let's have some fun. Let's yeah. talk about some fun stuff. Why don't we talk about Willow, Xander and Cordelia? <laughs> Willow, Xander and Cordelia. <laughs> Starting with Willow, because Willow is freaking awesome. I love the opening where she's explaining the Bolly- Bollywood uh, movie to them. And they're both braiding her hair. And and she totally so she she knows exactly what is going on. She's, yes. <laughs> she has followed the plot. She's exactly. Willow. Willow knows what's up. She's Willow knows. It's great. Mm-hmm. 
It's great. It is. It's really great. I love the. I love Xander braiding her hair along with yep. Buffy. It's very, very cute, and it puts them all in this kind of same space. It's not like there's girls and there's this boy, but like they can all spend that time together. And uh, and so I thought that that was really nice. Um, Willow throughout this episode is freaking kick ass. I love when she says to Buffy, "It's not a date. It's a caffeinated beverage. Sure, it's hot and bitter like a relationship." <laughs> so so and i love her in the moment before when she says buffy's talking about dreaming about angel and and willow says you guys are so right for each other and then realizes what she said like she's being the supportive friend who's saying the right thing and then she realizes wait no that's not true at all it has to backpedal it's but it's the the buffy willow friendship is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things that yeah no I absolutely I love it I love love her with Xander when they're sitting there talking about um you know Xander going to the party to protect Buffy and all this kind of stuff because God knows a slayer needs a 16 year old boy to protect her but whatever um and as they're talking she takes his candy bar and he takes her soda and they just trade yes and it is so incredibly cute I love the relationship with Xander and Willow we've seen that trade before we saw it in Mm -hmm. Buffy Buffy's nightmare in when mm-hmm. she was bad, they're opening, Willow and Xander open their lunches and Yep, and they, they throw swap. across to each yeah. other. Mm-hmm. He throws a granola bar or something at her and she throws her apple at him. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. lo- it's lovely. I love the little moments in their relationship. It is. But I think the best Willow moment, I mean, come on, <laughs> right? The best Willow moment is when she is yelling at Giles and Angel. It's so good. <laughs> Why do you think she went to the party? Because you gave her the brush off and you're killing her with the pressure. And you, I mean, you're going to live forever. You can't have coffee. Like, I love that whole thing. It's adorable. And then this this tiny little girl yelling at these two yes. guys in positions of power. And then she wraps it up with, I don't feel better now. <laughs> we gotta go save Buffy. <laughs> like, it's like... so incredibly like I love Willow is Willow is like the opposite of of Tom, right? In that she seems like mousy and she mm. seems, you know, like quiet and unsure of herself, but in reality she's just quiet. But she knows exactly like you know who she is she knows what's right and wrong and she will yell at men twice her side and 15 times her age at any point right yeah if it's required like she is she is a lot tougher I think than we think she is because she's also so quiet and unassuming Mm -hmm. you know um but I I love her and I love that moment when she's just staring at Angel and she's like (laughs) the reflection thing that you don't have Angel how do you shave shave? (laughs) (laughs) which is the cutest thing so I think Willow is probably in this episode it's one of the most delightful Willows I think we've seen yet she's fantastic and I love the little mm-hmm. flickers of jealousy that we get from Willow in this yeah. episode when when Tom mm-hmm. is talking to Buffy is first talking to Buffy mm-hmm. and Xander is reflecting on how much he hates these guys and yeah Willow's like yeah with their money and their power and their 
You know, she like gets a little yes. bit dreamy for half a second and then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I hate these guys. You know, like, yeah, no, they're terrible. Yeah, I hate them. <laughs> and then, you know, it's yeah. funny. I just got through, I think it was a couple episodes ago, I said something about Willow not being um, cowed by Cordelia, that Willow doesn't really want to yeah. be part of Cordelia's group. But mm-hmm. here we've got a little bit of jealousy from Willow yeah. about Cordelia taking Buffy to the frat party. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because I don't, I mean, for my money, I don't think we've seen that from Willow before. I don't remember yeah, seeing Willow, has... Willow wishing that Cordelia would pay attention to her in this way. Yeah, I've I've never seen that from Willow. And so it, it felt to me like kind of an, an off note. Yeah. Except that maybe, you know, Buffy's spending time with Cordelia and maybe Buffy would rather spend time with Cordelia if Buffy, you know, had a choice. But Buffy always had a choice. Yeah. She could have chosen Cordelia right from the jump and, you know, right. she didn't. So, um, yeah. so, yeah, I don't know. That that felt like a, that felt like, you know, kind of like an, an off key note to me. Except that if you want to if you want to spin it, if you want to spin a little queer reading on it, is Willow's jealousy of the wealthy frat guys and then of this relationship between Cordelia and Buffy more about Willow's desire to be attractive to women and not mm. so much about wanting to be in Buffy's position of being chosen by the frat guys or being chosen by Cordelia. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm certain that that is that is unintentional at this point. If that's mm-hmm. the subtext that we're getting here, but yeah, I could headcanon it. Sure, you can. Sure, you can. Um, no, I think it's good. I can read whatever jealousy onto Willow I want. Death of the author, baby. If you see it, it is there. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Xander. Yes, we got a little bit. Speaking a of little bit of shadow. jealousy, got... good lord. Ugh. Dear Why? Freaking God. Okay. <laughs> I hate that he is still so possessive of Buffy. And it really is about possession. You totally. know, he doesn't want her to be around any man that isn't him or Giles. You know, it's not protective. Although protective isn't much better because that's really patronizing, especially because um look at Buffy. She's the slayer. She doesn't need your protection. Yeah, she, exactly. No, she's fine. <laughs> Exactly. But I mean, even protectiveness of her like still diminishes her agency. She needs a man to protect her. She needs and he's putting himself in that role because she won't allow him in any other role. Right. Yeah. Um, And so his possessiveness of her. He hates Angel. He hates Tom. He hates every guy who gets near her. Yeah. You know, Um, and the thing is, is that we see this. We see the exact opposite. Right mature love coming from willow who's encouraging him last week to go out with impata you know because even though she really loves him she more than that wants him to be happy Mm -hmm. right and that's what it is when you really truly care about somebody you want them to be happy and if it's not with you then that sucks but you know at least they're happy right um and he is so possessive of buffy he would rather her be alone and miserable every night alone rather than be with anybody that isn't him yeah and i that's not being a good friend now granted he's 16 years old Mm -hmm. he's immature willow has a maturity beyond her years you know Mm -hmm. um and so all right fine but it's still got this shadow xander sense to it because i think we're supposed to see it as really cute when it's not that cute yeah and it's not 
necessary. Like there's not, no, it doesn't need to be there in order for mm-hmm. the story to be compelling or the relationships among the characters to be compelling. Right. I can see him not liking Angel because Angel's a vampire and that shit's dangerous. Yeah. Like I can see him being worried about that for his friends. Yes. Right. And the- but not wanting her to be with a seemingly charming, good looking guy, you know, who's showing interest like that. It's just about possessing Bubby. Yeah. I mean, last time, mm-hmm. last episode in Inca Mummy Girl, he balks just at the idea of the exchange student who's going to be staying with Buffy being male. Being a man. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. any man who's not Xander. Yeah. So, I mean, Xander's got some cute stuff in this. I love starve a snake, lose a fortune. I guess the rich really are different. Yeah. Like, okay. He's, there's still Xander that I love yeah. in this and episode. When you know? he, that, in that scene when he's mm-hmm. bad mouthing Angel or he's he's making fun of Angel and then Angel is right behind him, he just says, Hey man, like he doesn't do yeah. the oh shit, he's right behind me kind of shock. Right. It's just like, yeah, right. I don't like Angel. Angel knows I don't like Angel. <laughs> it's fine. Right. Like that Exactly. That mm-hmm. I thought was funny. Yeah, no, I thought that was cute. So there's some light Xander and there's some shadow Xander. I think we've got a little mixture of both. Mm-hmm. But I really loved him with Willow. I thought that his the way he was with Willow, I loved him braiding hair at the beginning of the episode, being happy and comfortable being quote unquote one of the girls mm-hmm. as the which is usually something that that he or boys would take as an insult, mm-hmm. you know. Um but he's actually embracing that role there and I really like yeah. that um, so there is some good Xander here there's some not so great Xander here but there is pretty much fantastic Cordelia what did you think of Cordelia in this episode oh my I loved her. <laughs> Cordelia Cordelia has so many great moments um, yes <laughs> leading up to her her final moment but I, I almost want to save that I want to talk about all of the other Cordelia before we get to that yes. wonderful <laughs> reaction at the end I, there's something that I really like about Cordelia being methodical in her relationship to men. You know, we see her like she's yeah. doing her research at the beginning. Yeah. And there's something kind of great about Cordelia understanding that this is a system that she is going to participate in. I mean, I don't right. necessarily yes. agree with it. I don't think that's. I don't think that's the best way to get ahead. But if you can, if you can play the game, I think that that's, there's, there is something almost admirable in that. She's doing her research. She's got all of these rules that, I don't know, she, she has either studied up or made up. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. she's very confident in her own knowledge of how the world works. Right. And Mm -hmm. there's something. And she's honest about it. She's not like, he's so nice and he's so wonderful and he's so gentlemanly and he's all of these things and I love him. She's like, no, this is about me and my future and I'm locking this shit down. (laughs) You know, at least she's being straight about it. Like she knows she's participating in a system and she knows how the system works and she doesn't have a problem. Like this moment when she says to Buffy, this isn't about fun. This is about exactly your duty to help me achieve permanent prosperity. (laughs) Like I love that. I love when she's talking to Buffy and she starts out trying to flatter her and she says, all right, I respect you too much to be dishonest. The hair's not good. You know? Um, it's really great. And like the way that she handles herself, she's 
doing what she's doing. She's motivated how she's motivated, but she's not pretending to be anything other than what she is. And I like that. Yeah. And she's a nice counterpoint to Buffy and her Mm -hmm. Buffy's emotional turmoil in this episode because it's the fight with Angel in the in the graveyard that propels Buffy forward in her relationship Mm -hmm. with Cordelia she's she is angry and upset about what Angel has said to her and that Mm -hmm. is what makes her agree to go with Cordelia to the Mm -hmm. to the frat party and it's so it's just Cordelia and Buffy are such a nice contrast I mean we get a lot of that over the run of the show Mm -hmm. but I think here it's just a great um, I don't it, it just feels really, really well done that Cordelia is yeah. so on. She's she's a woman on a mission and this mm-hmm. is how she's going to relate to these these boys. And, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's all about it's all about the college guys. And then at the end, it's mm-hmm. all about the younger men. <laughs> right. right. Um, no. Whereas Buffy is having all of these complicated feelings about. Mm-hmm. being in love with a vampire and wanting to date and the f- sense that dating is an impossibility for her. So it's just, it's a great, it's a great contrast. I love their energy, w- especially in that scene together when uh, Cordelia yeah. is, <laughs> Cordelia is laying out the rules for. <laughs> <laughs> and then Buffy drops her head on the books and we see her in the background with her head just on the books while Willow and Xander have their little interaction. Yep. It is so incredibly cute, you know, and she's just going on this thing because, you know, Giles is pushing her and Angel is neglecting her and she's just, you know, trying to do what she can to live a life. She is not sacrificing herself to the system that she's in. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, Cordelia is embracing her system yes. and, and Buffy is rejecting hers. Yeah. You know? um, so I so I really like that. I love Buffy in this episode. Um, she's constantly not being heard. Giles doesn't hear her. Angel doesn't hear her. Xander does not hear her. Yeah. Um, all the men have decided what's best for her and only Willow hears her. Yeah. You know, so um, I love that. I love Cordelia tells her not to wear black. Of course, she wears black. Um, that Buffy knows what it is that she wants. And she's not playing games with Angel. Yeah, you know, she's straightforward with him, you know, in the graveyard at the end when she says, oh, maybe I'll show up for coffee. Yeah. Like that's bullshit gaming and whatever. Um, but she's, you know, she knows what she wants. She's going to say so. You know, she's not afraid to tell Giles that she wants a life. She's aware of what she has a right to. And she's asking for it. And she's not allowing the system that she's in to tell her that she shouldn't have it yeah you know um and i like this when giles says you should hone your skills day and night and buffy says and the little slice of life that still belongs to me from i don't know seven to seven oh five in the morning can i do what i want then you know um i like that she's throwing it back at him that she's not allowing this and she breaks his quarterstaff he comes at her with yes. the with the staff as part of hand hand i'm training. not going to hold back yep. and she just right. stomps on it she breaks his phallic yep. symbol <laughs> she just he comes at her with this mm-hmm. patriarchal you know role and duty and she stomps on it and breaks it yeah i love it yeah no I it's really love it. really great i love it but we didn't uh, talk about cordelia and buffy at the very end, Cordelia, of course, is yeah. her damsel in distress yes. once again. Mm-hmm. And Buffy 
saves the day, you know, again, hacks the, mm-hmm. the snake in half. <laughs> and Cordelia is just like, cannot, she, she can't believe it. She goes through I all know. of the emotions. I know. It is so fantastic. And Charisma Carpenter's performance is so great. She's like, you did it. You saved us. And it seems like she's grateful to Buffy, but she ends up throwing herself into Angel. (laughs) And he just stands there like, what is happening? Exactly. (laughs) I've never been so happy to see anyone in my life. And then she's like, you guys, I just hate you guys. You know? <laughs> and then she's like, the weirdest things always happen when you're around. And then she turns to Richard. She's like, you are going to jail for 15,000 years. It's so great. It's, I, she runs through all of that. It's so great. I love the emotional roller coaster. And of course, it just occurred yeah. to me that Buffy's emotional roller coaster in this episode is very internal. She doesn't get yeah. to express that with the drama and the flair that. Cordelia mm-hmm. gets to she doesn't right. have she doesn't have the space for that kind of emotion because she has to mm-hmm. do her duty right I mean and and Sarah Michelle Geller, I got to give it to her I mean I can see the wheels turning in Buffy's head mm-hmm. every time she's alone and quiet when she's at the party and thinking and yeah we see her face she's clearly or when she's talking to to Tom at the beginning and mm-hmm. this, first of all, Sarah Michelle Gellar can smolder at anyone. It's kind of amazing. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, there's there, wh- there's real chemistry there. But we can see the thought process. And I love that mm-hmm. so much. And it just occurred to me that that's a great contrast, again, to Cordelia, who is just mm-hmm. all surface. It's just all out there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, she's playing the role. You know, we've had her acknowledge that before, that she's like, I know what this system is. I know what expect what's expected of me. She doesn't necessarily enjoy being popular. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, you yeah. can be with all these people and still be completely alone. But Cordelia is in her role. Like, she's doing what she's supposed to be doing. She knows what's happening. She's not pretending it's anything other. You know, um, so Cordelia is playing her role. And Buffy is feeling her feelings, you know. Um, Cordelia doesn't feel deeply or does not appear to feel deeply. We don't see that from her yet, you know. Um, And Buffy feels everything. And the thing about Sarah Michelle Gellar is that I would be hard pressed to name another actor who can do emotion the way that she can. I think James Marsters' Spike comes real close. Mm -hmm. Um, But even he, as amazing as he is, is dwarfed by what Sarah Michelle Gellar can do. Yeah. Um, her ability to play those emotional things. And I would say that I don't think, I haven't seen everything else that she's done, but I don't think anybody else has given her material that is up to what she can do um, since Buffy. I don't think she's gotten anything close to this to be able to do. And when she doesn't have that incredible emotional work to do, Mm -hmm. um, it feels it feels like less, yeah. you know, like there's just like, she's a good actress in every other way. Like, I mean, she's, she's fine. She's great. But what she does with, with deep emotional moments and deep emotional notes is extraordinary. And I think there are very, very few actors who are in her league in that way. And I just don't think that she's gotten material outside of Buffy that really lives up to what she is capable of. You know, I mean, she did Scooby-Doo and she was cute and she was funny. Mm-hmm. 
but it didn't give her the opportunity to do and she did like some horror movies and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff but the horror of Buffy is not she, I think she got pinned into that because she was Buffy yeah. but the horror of Buffy is not where she excels I mean it's where she's okay yeah. you know she's fine she's a fine actress you know but where she is is incredibly extraordinary is in this space that that not many women in general not many people in general have the opportunity to play emotion that deeply mm-hmm. And she got this incredible opportunity where her extraordinary skills matched up with material that required that of her. And it's incredible to watch. Yeah, I'm really interested in that, in her performance in the scene in the graveyard with Angel, where he Mm -hmm. tells her, he says something about, you know, high school girls, you don't know what you want. And I don't know, like, I... I don't really know how to read what's going on between them in that scene. It feels, I mean, I feel like her, her performance suggests a lot of conflicted feelings in that moment, but she does say, he says something about, you know, you want a date and she says no. And Mm -hmm. I just don't, what, what is happening with them? What, I don't understand Buffy and Angel in this episode. And then there's that poetic bit about, you know, when you kiss me, I want to die. I don't, like, I, I bounced hard off of the Buffy and Angel in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay i actually i actually liked it um the 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 very dramatic no when you kiss me i want to die like that is uh, that has never been my favorite thing um but in this what i see and this and a lot of this i think is informed by what i know of angel after this you know um and i think that in the moment i can see why anybody who's only been this far through you know deeply um and hasn't like watched the whole angel series as well um that it's it's not very clear but i think that that he he cares about her deeply and she wants him but he thinks and i think he's right that she doesn't entirely know who he is right you know and like so here is this girl he wants who wants him but she wants he thinks that she wants him for things that that he isn't you know um and she wants him for the things that she is she doesn't know like the darkness that lies underneath that we're going to be seeing later in this season um and he knows that she doesn't know that like she's heard about it she's seen it on paper she's read about it in an old book but she has not experienced it so he's i think protecting himself as much as he's protecting her because if you knew what I was, you wouldn't want me, you sure. know, so stop pretending that you want me because it makes it harder for me to walk away from you, you know. Um, and also this idea, you teenage girls, you don't know what you want in an episode in which Buffy is so clear on what she wants. It's not that she's a teenage girl and she doesn't know what she wants. It's that she's a teenage girl and nobody will listen to her when she says this is what I right. want. You know, Um, and so so I I found that kind of interesting. And I like that scene. I like when he says, if I kiss you, you don't wake up, you know, and become a princess like that's not this is not a fairy tale. Like he is telling her there is real darkness here. There are things that you have not experienced that you can't know. about. You know, Um, no. Is he. And so I like that. Is he alluding to the curse of the constantly misunderstood sex shaming plot device? (laughs) 
I mean, he doesn't know. He doesn't know okay. that if he has perfect happiness, he'll lose okay. his soul. He doesn't know that at this point. But I think that what he's alluding to is the darkness that is within him that he, you know, like we see this elaborated on much more in the future. We see it in Angel, the series. We see it in the season three episode, Amends. Um, where he, Angelus is a part of him Mm -hmm. and he is constantly fighting that part of him because he lives a very complicated and difficult life as Angel trying to do good. Right. Um, But there is this part within him that is so much simpler if he just gives into it. He could live a simpler, easier life if he just gave in to being Angelus, but he can't do it. You know, so he's, so it's not that he's not, angelus when he has a soul you know it's that he his soul makes it possible for him to fight off being angelus you know but that means that he's in that fight every day he's like uh, you know somebody who's had addiction Mm -hmm. problems right you know or somebody who's had trauma Mm -hmm. like that's never not a part of you from that day forward right it's you're never going to be healed from it you're never going to be cured you're never going to be all better you carry that with you every day and it 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 pulls a weight on you every day and every day you have to work with it now over time the longer you go you know past the trauma the longer you go past the addiction Mm -hmm. you know I mean it gets a little easier but it's never gone it's always there you always have to fight it and there's there's you know backsliding right you know which is not something that Angel has had to deal with yet we're going to see him deal with that pretty soon um But I think that he has all of that within him. He knows the darkness that is within him. And he doesn't want her to to see that. You know, he doesn't want her to experience that. But he also, I think, thinks that if she if you just knew what I was, you wouldn't want me. Mm -hmm. So stop it, because this is making it very difficult for me to resist you. You know, when you when you say you want me, you don't know what this Mm -hmm. is, you know. Um, So I think he's trying to warn her. He's trying to scare Mm -hmm. her, you know, Um, but she knows what she wants. She knows exactly what she wants. Okay, I like that. I like that explanation better that it's not you don't know what you want, as in you are unaware of your own desire. It's you don't know what you want in in the sense of you don't know what you're asking for. In wanting to be with you don't me. know what comes yeah. with what you want right yeah. you don't know that what you want has a lot more to it than what you think mm-hmm. it is you know and so that's how I read that but that also comes from an extra textual space if you're talking about just this episode, sure you know or just this point where we are in Buffy without knowing everything that happens in the future without having all of that elaboration that you get with Angel and his darkness throughout the run of both series sure. right um it's yeah you absolutely read this as you're just a teenage girl you don't know what you yeah. want yeah well you know? and this episode i think it's willow who says something about you know oh, he's a vampire well, that doesn't mean he's a bad person necessarily we're starting <laughs> right. to get i mean it's a funny line but I, mm-hmm. I think we're starting to get a kind of sense of what vampires are going to be moving forward, right. how complicated it's mm-hmm. not. It's not what we got in the in the pilot of this looks like your friend, but it's a demon. There's no exactly, you know, there's no humanity there whatsoever. It is just a mm-hmm. demon in a human suit to mm-hmm. now we've got nuance with vampires and we we have seen um you know we've seen that there's it's 
not that simple that there is some humanity there, even if the vampire doesn't have a soul. Right. I mean, look at Spike and Drusilla, right? We have vampires in love. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more human than love, right? Although, you know, I think animals experience love too. But but, I mean, there is like, that is an incredibly human trait. That's not a demonic trait. Thing. And so I think that every, like we have Angel who has a soul and is battling um, his darkness, mm-hmm. you know, and then I think on the flip side, you have vampires who are embracing their darkness, but still have that human spark within them. Mm-hmm. And so that is a battle that that wages the other way, you know, um, but when you've got Spike and Drusilla, who are so clearly in love. You know, um, and I mean, it's a dark twist of love, but it's love. Well, and they're certainly in sync. Um, I mean, if you want to have the argument about, you know, whether they're, whether what they're experiencing is love, they clearly are connected to each other in a way that's deeper. And deeply loyal to each other. Exactly. Like, you know, Spike would destroy anybody for Drusilla, but not Drusilla. Yes. You know, like, so it, there is something there. There is something more complicated. And we're going to see that referenced, of course, a little bit later in the season when the judge looks at Spike and Drusilla and says, there's humanity mm-hmm. in you, you know? Um, and he looks at the, uh, the nerdy um, accountant and says, you know, you like, he loves numbers and he loves books. He cares about things. And those are things that make you human. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the stink of humanity on you. <laughs> so I think that there is a, um, there's a spectrum yeah. of, of how human a particular vampire may be, yeah. you know? Um, so it's, it's, I think, a really interesting discussion. We're definitely, season two starts this transition into a new kind of vampire, you know, where we're making them more complicated and we're making them more nuanced and nothing is entirely clear. And then as we move forward from there, we're going to have the, the more nuanced demons, right? Demons that can be mm-hmm. good. Demons that are just trying to do their thing, just trying to live their lives, you know. Um, So we're going to be seeing more of that as well. And it's all going to become much more complex, much more nuanced, and I think open up a space for better stories. But the overall world building of it is always a little murky. Yeah. You know, you don't really know where the lines are. And actually, I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. One of our one of our Chipperish community members, uh, He's our hirate on Twitter talks about um, knitting your parachute on the way down, which is a Uh it's a usually referring to um, making a joke or doing a piece of writing where I don't really know where this is going, but I'm just going to keep going with it. And I I sort of feel like the show is knitting their parachute on the way down vis-a-vis vampires. They're like, well, mm-hmm. we kind of need them to do this. So here we go. Now vampires have feelings or now vampires have, exactly. you know, and it's it's an interesting space to open up. I love what it gives us in terms of opportunities for storytelling and emotional resonance and all of these things. Mm-hmm. But watching with the thought that like this is your only exposure to Angel mm-hmm. as a character or Angel yeah. and Buffy in their relationship. You don't know what's about, you know, you have no idea what's about to happen. You haven't, mm-hmm. you know, Angel, the series does not exist yet. It's a yes. little bit odd to me. Like it doesn't, it, is. it 
I don't know. It doesn't work. I like that it works. Fair enough. I like that it works in the context of everything. In the context of right, but it doesn't work in this, this moment. season. I'm just like mm-hmm. we're we're right on the edge of something with the Buffy yes uh, Angel thing, and I guess we literally are because this is the beginning of their quote unquote dating relationship. Actual they dating are actually relationship. in a yeah. relationship now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whatever yeah. that means for a Slayer and a vampire. <laughs> We will certainly find out. I do love that idea of knitting the parachute on the way down. And I think that every television show does that of necessity because when you're, you know, first you get, I mean, typically like this, this structure changes now that we're having more and more shows that are greenlit for 13 episodes at Mm -hmm. once. But at the time, um, you know, you would create a pilot, they'd show the pilot around, then they decide if they wanted to give you a full series order and they could give you a half a season, which is what they did with the first season of Buffy. And then a full season, maybe later, if it's more successful all that kind of stuff so you write this thing and you put it out there and then you suddenly have more to do and you're like all right let's do it and then you do that and then suddenly you have a second season and you're like all right let's do that and you have a choice you can be consistent with all of the world building that you've done and find yourself locked in a space that shuts off some story avenues to you or you can just change it as you go and retcon it back you know and just be like all right this doesn't exist anymore and I think that option b is the better option oh for sure you know um being consistent in your world building under those kinds of creative circumstances I think would be almost impossible to do and one of the things that we have now which you know is a bit of a double-edged sword but I think it mostly is great um is that because we we now have the ability to have all of this stuff recorded so we can go back to a show over and over and over and over again first it was VHS tapes and then it was DVDs and now it's streaming right so we can go and revisit this stuff over and over and over again that gives you the ability to like really get deep deep into that story and also see you know some of the strings in the background you know um and so people get very excited when they can pull out like a world building inconsistency or you know you can see a, a key grip in a corner of the shot or something like <laughs> yeah. that right you know and people get very excited about being being able to call out that stuff and i think that there's definitely value having consistent world building is something that allows the reader and again i say reader no matter if you're watching TV, if you're playing a video game, if you're engaging with a critical, you're, you're reading a reader. it. Yes. You know, you're reading, you're reading the text, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it, it opens up a place for a reader to really feel like the walls, like in when they're in the world, you know, if they press against a wall, it's going to be solid. It's going to be there for them, you know. So having good, strong world building is absolutely very important. But if it comes down to a choice of telling a better story or having a completely consistent world, you choose the story and then you find a way to retcon that part of the world. Oh. Absolutely. Um, there's an episode of the Good Place podcast um, in, uh, that just came out with Mike Schur, who produces the show The Good Place, um, where he kind of talked about that. And he said, well, we had made this decision and then we had to figure out a way to like make it work. Because if we had stuck with what we had said in the beginning, then we were going to end up, it was going to make the story suffer. Right. And so he's like, so we changed it. And I was like, awesome. That's wonderful. You know, that's fine. Like, that's absolutely the right yeah. choice. Um, so I think that, um, in this particular circumstance, you're absolutely right in this episode as a standalone text, it doesn't work in the greater context of everything, you know, it works for me because I have all that extra textual Mm -hmm. knowledge, but within this one text, reading this one episode, you're absolutely right. It doesn't work. It's tricky. 
It's tricky, but something that I something that I like about I mean, call them inconsistencies in the world of Buffy specifically is that as we move through the series, Buffy gains mm-hmm. experience, you know, the people around her gain experience and that informs their understanding of the world. So when we start off in season one, it feels very much like this is all book learning. Like this is all we looked at the tomes and it says this about demons and there we go. But then you get out in the world and you interact with some demons and you realize, wait a second, not all of these demons, you know, the demons don't fall into these neat categories necessarily. Or, I mean, Mm -hmm. Buffy is all about improvisation we see this in her fighting over and over and over again that Mm -hmm. she uses what's around her so it's there's the i like that idea of a contrast between well we said this about demons or we said this about vampires or we said this about evil Mm -hmm. or magic or whatever but then once we actually start to engage with it and interact with it and see how it fits within the world oh there's a whole bunch more layers here that our our book learning can't show us no i like that too because i think that that actually gives a good in-world explanation for these things that that we're changing within the world is that we're seeing it through the perspective of giles who has book learning Mm -hmm. and buffy who hasn't had a whole lot of experience yet right um so when you're living through the perspective of these characters you see the world as they see it but here we have this evolving space that's evolving because their understanding of what they're dealing with is also evolving um so i think that that's a good in world explanation for these inconsistencies i like it so i would take us into arg the patriarchy where we complain about the patriarchy but right but that's pretty much the whole episode so yeah and and you know the girl power moment of the week is actually also uh, maps to our favorite parts so why don't we just skip to favorite part and we can talk about that there noelle tell me what's your favorite part of this episode my favorite part of reptile boy is willow yelling at giles and angel I You're going to live forever. So you don't great. have time for a cup of coffee. I mean, she's I just had it. She's just had it. It is and so then good. she doesn't feel better. She says, I don't feel better. Mm-hmm. And we have to go get Buffy. Like, she's just. <laughs> Poor Willow. And then later on, you know, so guys, great. basement, mm-hmm. snake. Like, come on. Exactly. <laughs> so I, oh, I, God, I hear so tell great. that I may have stolen your favorite part. <laughs> yes, that was my favorite part, but I have up? a second favorite. I do, I do, and it's Callie. Callie, by the way, played by Jordana Spiro, um, who was part of an, a TV series that I watched some years ago called My Boys, which nobody else watched. It was on like TBS or something, <laughs> <laughs> but I recognized her from that. Um, she's fantastic. Callie is fantastic. The fact that Callie is written as a complex and interesting character, even though she's basically a background damsel, mm-hmm. um, I think is fantastic. I think Jordana Spiro did a great job with the character. I love that she was written 
the way that she was written, which is something that I was not expecting for a background damsel, because sometimes we can't even write our foreground damsels uh, <laughs> that well, <Yep. laughs> you know. Um, so I really loved her. I loved how tough she was. I loved how smart she was. I loved the way she represented the woman who knows, yeah. you know, <laughs> the woman who knows exactly what's going on and what bullshit it is. Um, you know, I thought it was really great. And she was great. I loved both the, um, the acting and... And the writing for that character. I thought it was great. That's it for today. To join us in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Dine Rich and Noelle at Noelle Aloud and use the hashtag #StillPretty. You can also visit the Chipperish forums. Go to chipperish.com, click on forum, and join in the fun. Still Pretty is completely patron supported. No penis demon money snakes here (laughs) we appreciate all our patrons and their support and a dollar a month or more gets you into the live chat in discord where there's going to be drinking and older guys and probably an orgy (laughs) no not really there's but there's a lot of really really great discussion going on in discord so Join us there. You can visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. You can also show your support by giving Still Pretty a great review on Apple Podcasts or by telling your friends about the show or by yelling at Giles and Angel and Xander if he's nearby. (laughs) We will be back next time with Halloween, the sixth episode of season two. Until then, this isn't about fun. This is about duty. Your duty to help me achieve permanent prosperity. 